You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast from the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole, a member of the committee staff. This episode is part two of a two-part conversation on national security and social media. For part one, please go back and listen to our episode from two weeks ago. This episode features guest Peter Singer of New America and the author of the book, Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media, and Rachel Levinson-Waldman, the senior counsel for the Brennan Center for Justice and the co-author of The Trump-Russia Investigations, A Guide. And to turn back to Peter, one of the concerning aspects that people have noted recently about social media is not necessarily the fault of the platforms, but it's the way in which people have begun receiving their information through social media and the way that is changing our entire news and information landscape. Can you explain what it's been doing there? Well, I think what you're getting at is uh, a couple of the the issues that um, are familiar to us all. Uh, One is the, the nature of speed. The second is, uh, the issue of, um, called sometimes presentism, and then finally is the issue of uh, filter bubbles. Um, So first on the issue of speed is that essentially if you think about um, the term media, uh, it literally means in the middle, uh, and it's the profession that would, in essence, gather the news and then share the news, uh, and in that role, it also acted to decide what was newsworthy, but also uh, decide what was not, and what was considered not newsworthy uh, usually was uh, false information. Um, Now, because we are all online, uh, in effect, we're all uh, able to be news gatherers and distributors. The, the, The media, the middle, has been cut out. And one of the fascinating things is how figures that range from uh, NBA sports stars to terrorists to uh, the president himself all talk about this is what they love about social media. Uh, the fact that, um, you know, for example, uh, the phrase that's frequently used, um, again, by whether it's NBA sports stars to Trump is, you know, it's like owning and, and your own newspaper. Um, now, of course, you know, that's empowering, but it also means that uh, information can kind of rocket across the um, internet into our minds uh, without being checked, without being validated. Uh, It also means that misinformation and um, deliberate placement of false information can spread that way. And um, one of the sort of dangerous aspects of that is um, not just that it spreads rapidly, but um, frequently and then also once you're exposed to false information or conspiracy theory, it's like your defenses are are worn down. Um, There's fascinating studies where Essentially, once you believe in one conspiracy theory, you're more likely to believe in others, uh, even if they have kind of no relation to each other. So, you know, the flat earthers, et cetera, it also has a tie into um, belief in uh, extremism and the like. Um, so you've got that element of speed. You also have the issue of presentism uh, because everything's coming so fast. It is almost as if there's no history and um, events uh, kind of seem like they never happen. You're kind of consumed by what's playing out in front of your screen. And the, again, the actors that have figured out how to, you know, kind of master and manipulate this are ones that, um, Taylor Swift, for example, described 
described how a key was to feed her followers a steady diet of surprises. That's in effect what Donald Trump has also done. Uh, you know, just think of all the. I mean, uh, we're talking right now, and it's you know, there is uh, everything from uh, Mueller Russia Gate news to the border wall to uh, you know, to date when the podcast is happening, Mattis just resigned to the market crash to you know, there's things that happened just a couple of days ago we haven't you know think about anymore. That sense of presentism, uh, all consuming, um, and I. Those those issues um, are uh, challenging to a system, whether it's the news media or a political system that was developed along a different model. So I kind of I'll, I'll leave it back because I'm realizing I'm giving a slightly longer answer for you. Well, we we're welcoming a longer answer. Um, you know, I I thought you alluded um, earlier to you mentioned how um, the presentism, the loss of history, or I would also say loss of context of any kind. Um, let me add, though, I thought you were referencing earlier some of the um, revelations back uh, about a year ago that many of these companies had employed people in the gaming industry and in order to get people to essentially be addicted to uh, the use of, of social media platforms. Is that something you'd feel comfortable commenting on? I'm not going to talk about kind of the, the, the gaming side of it, but what we do know is that social media use is designed to be addictive, um, both psychologically and even physically. You know, for example, think of the red notification button when you have a, a message awaiting you uh, on, for example, Facebook. You know, that didn't just happen. Uh, the color red was chosen because um, you react in a different way to it. You, you both notice it and want it to go away. Um, Notice how the notification, it's gratifying to make it go away. Um, notice also how the notification doesn't tell you the importance of it. Uh, it's, you know, bright red, but it doesn't say, you know, this is an important message from your your spouse versus it's some annoying friend from junior high that's reaching back out. You know, you, you still have to click it to make it go away. You still have to interact with it. And so I often think about this when you hear, you know, people say, well, you know, I'm, I'm just going to stop using it. A um, couple things. The first is not everyone has that luxury, whether it's um, people who need to use social media for their profession to large parts of the planet where social media literally is their Internet. You know, for example, almost the entire country of Philippines or Myanmar it's really funneled through Facebook. Uh, you have this element of addiction. Uh, it's hard for people you know, to stop using it, particularly those who've grown up where it's natural in their world. And then finally, and, you know, we're having a discussion about kind of the, the bad side of all of this, but I often have to remind people it's a technology. It has both a good and bad side. So in the book, for example, every um, tactic, every tool that's used we try and give a good and a bad version of it in terms of its impact on the world. Uh, so you think of something like um, crowdsourcing, even something specific, um, Ice Bucket Challenge. Great illustration of the duality. Ice Bucket Challenge was used both to um, involve people in kind of a fun, but again, it was a show-offy way, but it, it was for a good purpose. It was to raise attention about a disease and fundraise against it. Great. Ice Bucket Challenge was also uh, manipulated, turned for terrorist uh, fundraising as well. So, you know, every part of this has a 
kind of thing circles back to some of the things you were hearing before is the the difference with this maybe as opposed to certain other areas is that it at least in the united states it's not the government so far that has been deciding on how to regulate that good and bad and tilt it towards the good it's been um basically the platform companies and more specifically a literal handful of tech company you know essentially founders uh, are making these decisions that have massive impact on politics and war. You know, the, one of the strange outcomes of light war that we wrestle with is how a handful of tech geeks that really aren't all that interested in you know, law, politics, and war are now some of the most powerful actors in these spaces. You know, Mark Zuckerberg uh, starts out writing basically cool software to evaluate whether his doormates were hot or not. That's the origin of what was originally called Face Mash. And now he's making decisions like, should Russian information warfare operations be allowed to sabotage an election or not? Should neo-Nazis be allowed to speak out or not? Should Myanmar generals be allowed to organize and motivate genocide or not? And however he decides, uh, even if it decides, as what happened early on, to ignore it, decides to do nothing, it has impact. You know, people's lives, the fate of elections, are being decided in this space by, again, some people that you know never set out to have that role. Right, uh, and it's a godlike role. That is not at all um, comforting. All right, so uh, listening to this, it's made the future of our sovereignty seem dim, dystopic. But let's be frank, that's not, entire, that's not the entire picture. Um, social media is providing access to groups that have not always had a seat at the political table in America. Is that right, Rachel? Yeah, absolutely. And I think in some ways it sort of goes to, to Peter's point that there's, all, there's sort of always two sides to this in terms of what the consequences of, of social media are, but also the function that it serves to various groups. So certainly in this realm, um, there was a study that the Pew Research Center did just just this year, um, this past summer, they did a study on activism in the social media age. And one of the things that they unearth is how powerful social media has been as a site for political activity and organizing, right? That's no surprise. I think anybody who spends time or at least anybody who feels sort of politically inclined and spends time on social media sites knows that, especially in the last couple of years, but in general, they have been really significant sites for bringing people together for sharing information, for, you know, organizing rallies, things like that. What really stood out here was especially how significant it's been for users of color. Um, so they found that the Black Lives Matter hashtag had been used over 30 million times on Twitter. Um, and differences between Black and Hispanic users and white users in terms of what they said about how important those platforms specifically were to them. So 32% of white users said that social media sites were important venues to express political views. Half of all black and Hispanic users said the same things. About 20%, so about a fifth of white users said that social media was very important for getting elected officials to pay attention to, to issues that were important to them. Um, but about a quarter of Hispanics and 36% of black users said the same. So it was clear that for users who may not otherwise have as much political capital and might not otherwise be able to get the attention of elected officials and speak directly to them, right, speak in some ways in an unmediated way or kind of collect 
um, enough of a mass of users to speak with a larger voice that social media was important in a really significant way in carrying out that role. I mean, it sounds incredibly cost effective too, in a sense that you don't have to have the money to come to the table, it's just right there. Um, you know, minority populations can be um, separated from one another across mm -hmm. this country, and so that side is actually really optimistic. But I have to say, Peter's book left me, I actually had bad, bad dreams after I read it. <laughs> Thanks so much, uh, Peter. So one of the things that I wonder is, what are the solutions here? Now, Peter, I know you're a political scientist. Rachel, Rachel is a lawyer. I guess that I've always had a, a theory that in identifying any problem, we also should try to come up with at least some avenues, if not specific ideas for solutions. And one of the things that um, in a pre-call that I talked to uh, Rachel about was, how do we protect people's right to express themselves you know, is there something short of taking these things down, like marking posts as likely having been sourced, being sourced to foreign governments or proxy actors um, to deny any monetization of posts um, or to deny people the acts, acts, you know, allow them to put up hyperlinks to some of these sites. Um, they can say what they want in the post, but, you know, they can't make money off of it. It may, would that um, disincentivize them? Um, what are your thoughts sort of generally on something short of just collapsing these sites and taking them down? The first is to recognize the nature of what's going on um, and then to organize around it. So, and I think, you know, illustrated by your choice of guests, um, it's not going to be uh, a solution that comes from one single field or even one single sector. This is something I, I like to make the parallel to cybersecurity, how you know, if you go back about 15 years ago, we start to pay attention to the hacking of networks, and um, we react to everything from government to corporations to individual behavior. Um, and the same thing here. So you know, the United States um, on the governmental side, well, we don't even have a strategy for this. Uh, to um, you know, more specific examples, the impact of it on elections, uh, the focus um, is, has been on um, hacking of voting machines as opposed to hacking of the ecosystem around the election itself. So, you know, one is to have a strategy um, in terms of uh, policy items that can be done. Uh, there have been a variety of things that have been done by other nations um, that we could copycat. Uh, for example, uh, the Baltics, um, and they have whole uh, society approaches where, uh, for example, the government um, helps identify through a variety of means incoming foreign government disinformation uh, attacks. Um, it's almost akin to kind of a, a bad weather notice. Uh, it's the same uh, aspect here, um, and then shares that uh, with media and the like um, to uh, the role of um, education and digital literacy. Uh, one of the really strange things is that the United States government actually pays for Ukrainian students to learn how to recognize Russian disinformation campaigns online, but not for our own students, even though, go back to... Um, over a half of the American population was exposed to this kind of stuff. Um, it might be creating, in some cases, new organizations, other cases, bringing back old organizations. During the Cold War, for example, we had something called the Active Measures Working Group. It was a, we'd call it an interagency team. It brought together everything from 
spies to diplomats to broadcasters to educators back then to identify KGB efforts to plant um, disinformation in third world battlefields. Uh, now the battlefield's online and we don't have an equivalent kind of cross-agency effort. Then you move over to uh, the role of private companies. And I wanted to echo again um, the notion of uh, sort of the balancing act between freedom of speech but also the fact that these are privately run networks. So just like the government has to understand, you know, this kind of uh, activity matters to the health of our democracy, the companies themselves have to take on new responsibility where, you know, they are not just profit-seeking organizations. They are running public spaces where literally the fate of democracies, in some cases, people's lives are determined by the decisions that they make. Uh, they can no longer ignore that. And there's a lot of different things that they can and should put into place. But one of the particulars we talk about in the book, the notion of um, dangerous speech. As a, and this is an idea actually from the legal field of how you can you can preserve free speech, but recognize that there are for certain forms of speech that are designed to attack society and, um, in particular, motivate violence. That kind really should be targeted. And you know, it, the way I kind of frame it is that you have a right to free speech. You do not have a right to use a privately owned network to deliberately push false information that is designed to be harmful to society. And one of the interesting um, aspects of, uh, and it sort of points to, you know, I think some, some hope here, is that there is a strong overlap uh, between the key hubs, the key super spreaders of hate and extremism, conspiracy theory, and foreign government disinformation. There's actually an alignment between them. So if you figure out how to deal with these super spreaders, you have a positive effect on all that, uh, all three categories. And then finally have the role of us, the digital literacy aspects of it. Um, vast majority of us use social media but don't understand how it works, how the companies make money. We don't understand how we're being monetized. And we also don't understand the role that we play in spreading false information and the like. And I'd love to get to a point where um, I think of kind of the public health parallels of this, where, for example, um, you know, we teach our kids basics of public health, you know, cover your mouth when you cough. But we do it not merely to protect them, but also to put into them an ethic that they need to protect others. Um, it's the same thing online. The uh, single statistically sort of most dominant um, of, of whether fake news is uh, spread or not is not whether it's true, um, it's whether it's been shared by a friend or family member, someone inside your network. It gets that kind of stamp of approval on it, and then you're more likely to share it as well. And so I'd love kind of the public health parallel to be, you know, we're all taking on greater responsibility, but also that we look upon those that spread disinformation, that spread false stories as almost akin to the person that sneezes right in front of you and, you know, doesn't cover, you know, their mouth or then, you know, tries to shake your hand immediately after. You know, it should be kind of frowned upon and, and looked down upon as opposed to, well, it's just part of the game. I feel like the way you've talked about bots and everything, it's like that person who sneezes on you and has Ebola. But I'm going to ask Rachel for her response. Yeah, so I just, I wanted to sort of add to a couple of points that came up. And I and before I do that, I will put in a very quick word for bots. 
Um, which is that I, they sort of get a bad reputation, and there are a lot of ways in which I think they are sort of misused. Right? I mean, Peter talked about how they can really lead to virality, right? They can magnify each other, including magnifying fake news, these kinds of things. But but bots are also, they can be just a useful tool on social media, right? So on Twitter, there are all sorts of bots that are there because they just do things automatically that would be cost prohibitive or time prohibitive for an individual person to do. So they're going to tweet out about, you know, every every time the FISA court releases an opinion, there's a bot that actually tweets that out. There are a whole bunch of bots that do useful automated things, which I just think is worth keeping in mind when we get to the point where we're talking about, well, what would regulation of social media platforms look like? Do bots have to register? That might not be that big of a deal, but is there are there going to be restrictions on bots? What would that look like that wouldn't reduce some of the real um, you know, utility that people get from, from social media platforms? That being said, I wanted to speak to, to a couple of additional points. I, I think the main one being that sort of it's not just the Russians, right? We've been talking a lot about um, Russian influence, Russian involvement, you know, what it looks like to have um, Russian um, propaganda, Russian sort of fake news that's on the platforms. Uh, but at the same time, sort of the Russians aren't our only problem. And if we could somehow stem fake news coming from abroad, there is still a lot happening that that in a lot of ways, sort of the Russians, I think, did a very good job of playing on and magnifying, but they didn't themselves invent. So one, and we were chatting about this a little bit before, before the podcast, is existing racial divisions. And we know that this has been a decade-long campaign by Russians to really play this up, partly for the purpose of painting the U.S. as not a model to be followed, right? We talk about ourselves as a democracy, as, you know, a nation of differences. You can have lots of people with different political backgrounds, different skin colors, all these things. And, and in fact, right, as we know, there's a lot of racial inequality. There are a lot of issues around racial justice. Um, and so this has been a long-term goal and campaign um, of Russians really starting at least in the Cold War and going forward to, to almost weaponize that fact and use it to, to magnify kind of existing discord. So, so I think that's one piece. And the other piece is there was a really fascinating article from Yochai Benkler, I want to say from this past summer, but I might be getting the timing wrong. Um, but he and I believe a co-author had analyzed um, a bunch of articles, um, a lot of information to kind of see, you know, what was getting picked up, kind of, to try to tease apart as much as possible literally what happened in the 2016 election. If you could pick a cause or if you could isolate the particular causes to say, why did the election turn out the way it did? To what extent could you pin it on Russian influence and Russian interference? And what they concluded was that really what it came down to was U.S. right-wing media. To some extent, it was because right-wing media was magnifying what was coming in from abroad, right? So so whatever Ru the Russians were planting, that was providing a lot of fodder for domestic news organizations to then pick up. But that, to a large extent, the pieces that were being spread, the pieces that were going viral, the pieces that, that contained a lot of fake information, really were the product of our own homegrown, very right-wing media that kind of trafficked in conspiracy theories, in virality, um, and also didn't have the same sort of fact-checking 
environment and norms that that a lot of the rest of the the mainstream media seem to have. And, it, and it, to be honest, I mean, it, it seems like Americans do have an appetite for this stuff. I see those magazines when I'm in the grocery store right before you leave, you know, with all sorts of nonsense about celebrities. And it's, I've never seen anyone buy one, but obviously they're selling or they wouldn't be there. So yep. people do like a lot of nonsense. I just want to thank you both. This has been uh, really great to have you on. And I hope that we see some movement in a government strategy or, or a, a national strategy um, that involves the private sector as well, uh, because I think this is uh, a really disturbing issue. And we talk a lot about in the context of the 2016 election, but I think the implications are ultimately far larger than that for us. Um, our guests tonight have been Dr. Peter Singer of New America, and he is the author of Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media, which was so good that I devoured it in less than two days. And um, let me just say I have no time. So that was really something. Um, and Rachel Levinson-Waldman, I want to get that in the right order, Senior Counsel for the Brennan Center for, Brennan Center for Justice's Liberty and National Security Program. She is the co-author of something that if you have not written, you, mu you have not read, you must read it. It is the Trump Trump-Russia Investigations, a guide. We will hyperlink it in the notes to the podcast. We will hyperlink to Peter's book and some of his other writings. And we're very glad that you came. Thank you for joining us for National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. You can find more about us or more from the podcast online at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. Drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org, on Twitter at ABA NatSec, or on our Facebook page. So if you're out there thinking about how much you want to work in a sunlight-deprived skiff and never be able to discuss your most important work with anyone, Join us again for our ne next episode. From all of us here, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.